0: This is the Immigration Conversation, presented by Fragomen, a series of talks and discussions by leading immigration lawyers and professionals from around the world. We'll bring you the most up-to-date business immigration news, issues of concern, and strategies in the world of global immigration and mobility.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of our athletes and Immigration Podcast Series. This will be an ongoing immigration conversation where we will discuss immigration issues that international athletes, sports teams, and sports leagues must navigate around the globe. My name is Corrine Wenger. I'm a partner at Fragman San Diego, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Monica Gilea, a senior associate in our San Diego office. Good morning, Monica. Thanks for joining our discussion today. Good morning, Karine. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, and I'll just go ahead and dive right into introduce what we'll be discussing today. Um, we all know that COVID has had a tremendous impact on students and universities, but it's been especially hard on the international student population. And, and it's been the subject of much debate in the U.S., as you know, with regard to the policies set out for F1 international students. During our conversation today, we will discuss these issues, but specifically from the perspective of international student-athletes. Karine, I know this topic is near and dear to both of us, with your son Jack getting ready to swim in college and as a former student-athlete myself, we've both seen firsthand how much training, planning, and forethought really goes into selecting the right school and athletic program, not to mention how much time the coaches spend recruiting the perfect athletes for their teams. Karine, in your experience, what type of sports tend to attract more international student-athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, As we look at the impact of this to international students, um, the types of sports that tend to attract more international athletes are those um, that are generally the the Olympic sports, so uh, rugby, which became an Olympic sport recently, soccer, tennis, and swimming. With that said, international student athletes are certainly on a variety of different sports teams at universities across the country and are critical to their teams and sports and and universities themselves. Um, Before we dive into the specifics of the impact to the international athletes, um, let's talk a bit about the events that have transpired over the last six months and how that's impacted the F1 international student visa category generally. As states began to impose stay-at-home orders, institutions of higher education, like many of the other industries, were forced to shut down. Large auditoriums filled with hundreds of students or dorm rooms where students are two, if not three, to a room in very close quarters were certainly not conducive to social distancing as mandated by the CDC and local authorities. And so, like many other sectors, universities and colleges were forced to pivot to a remote working uh, model, moving instruction online. And so, Monica, what was the impact to students on an F-1 visa as institutions had to move fully online? Well, for international students on the F-1 student visa, the shift to a 100% remote learning model could have seriously impacted their ability to maintain their F1 visa status. Generally, F1 students are only allowed to take one online class of three credit hours. As you know, in March, government agencies made a variety of concessions in response to COVID, and a relaxation of the remote learning rule for F1 student athletes is actually one of the first concessions that we saw. Specifically on March 9th, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, also known as SEVP, instituted a temporary exemption for the spring and summer 2020 semesters, which allowed F1 students to take a full course of study online and really be included in the university's plans to pivot and shift quickly over to that remote learning model. That was really critical to those students and their ability to remain in the US and lessen the impact to them. Corrine, can you tell us a little bit about how universities were addressing sports during that time? Sure. So, you know, March on March 12th, the NCAA was forced to cancel spring sports unfortunately due to COVID. And at the time, athletes from certain regions of the world like Europe, for example, could easily return home to due to higher rates of COVID in their home countries. So, certainly the SEBP's exemption to allow online learning Um, was, was quite critical for these students so that they could stay in the U.S., continue their studies for the end of the year. And then from a sports perspective, of course, we saw sports competitions being canceled as a result of COVID. Right. And it was understandable that those kind of events were canceled immediately due to the health concerns in the early stages of the crisis. Um, But also, just to further set the backdrop, around this time, many countries began implementing quarantines. There were a number of travel bans issued in the U.S. right around that same time. For example, the Schengen travel ban was implemented on March 11th. Consulates were closing around the world. It was especially important for international student-athletes to be able to remain in the U.S. to finish their semester and avoid the risk of not being able to return to the U.S. to resume their athletic training. These concessions were incredibly important for the student-athlete population specifically. Karim, you're familiar with the way that collegiate athletes train. Can you elaborate a bit on on why it was especially important for the international student-athlete population specifically to be able to remain in the U.S. from the perspective of the progression of their training? Yes, definitely. It's important to keep in mind that collegiate athletes train year round for the most part. And while schools were closed and stay at home orders were in effect across the country, the situation was very fluid and and remains to be quite fluid state by state. And so at the time, it was important for those athletes to be able to remain in the U.S. so that they could continue their training to the extent possible during these stay at home orders and then possibly be able to resume training if, and when it became safe to do so. Um, The training that these teams go through and these athletes at this level go through is not just physical, but also mental and remaining in close proximity to their teammates and their coaches, I think was quite important. So yes, the the SEVP relaxation was that much more critical, I think, to these international student athletes so that they could remain in the U.S. during that time. Thanks, Karina. I mean, that's really an important point. And as the spring 2020 semester came to an end, and the international student community and universities finalized their plans for the fall 2020 semester. They did so in reliance on SCVP's March policy because the indication from SCVP was that the policy would continue during the COVID pandemic crisis. At the time, experts warned that COVID would still be a major concern in the fall. And so most universities develop plans for online learning in the fall. And that's why it was a shock to the community when on July 6th, SCVP announced with little to no notice that they would be rolling back these accommodations for the fall 2020 semester. Kareen, can you share the details of what SCVP announced on July 6th? Yeah, so under their new policy, which like, as you mentioned, was quite sudden, um, and despite still being in a time of crisis, uh, SEVP indicated that basically F1 students attending schools that were operating entirely online um, would not be able to take a full online course load and remain in the U.S. And so, of course, given the continued COVID crisis with many of the states mandating that universities remain shut down and offer online courses only in the fall, This posed a problem, Um, and while under the new SEDP policy, students could still maintain their F-1 status, even while they were outside of the U.S., um, those active students who had just finished a semester and had planned on staying in the U.S. would have very little time to depart the U.S., and certainly could not stay in the U.S. in lawful status. So, for those students who are potentially at school, Um, at a school where, where, you know, which can no longer operate in um, in in-person class setting, then the normal regulations that you mentioned earlier, Monica, would apply. So only one class or three credit hours online would be permissible. Um, And, of course, even still today, very very few universities are able to resume in-person classes on a full-time basis. Um, There have been some discussions of universities adopting uh, perhaps a hybrid model, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, based on where we are today. But the way the policy was written, it would still have proven very difficult uh, for universities to comply and for f one students to remain, even on a hybrid model. So not only are international students as a whole in a predicament, in a place of uncertainty at that time as a result of the July 6th policy change. But thinking from the international student athlete perspective, this would have had a further impact into their their training. Um, Monica, what was the reaction uh, of the university community to this sudden shift? Well, understandably so. There was an instant uproar amongst universities across the country and immediate action. The universities understood that the change would severely impact their student body who they were ready to advocate for and protect as much as possible but they also knew that this policy shift would have a very negative impact to them economically to put this into perspective in the 2018-2019 school year there were more than one million international students in the U.S. and during that same school year international students contributed 41 billion to the U.S. economy so the universities knew the tremendous impact that this would have to their programs, to their endowments, not to mention the indirect economic impact that losing international students would have as a ripple effect to their surrounding communities. Kareem, can you share a little bit about the impact from the international student athletes perspective? Yeah, I think it's important to keep that in mind, right? The international student contribution to a university's revenue stream is is significant. Um, And certainly in the last few years, universities have been generally concerned with a decline in enrollment and applications from international students. Um, They have already been feeling the economic impact, and so this further exacerbates the issue. Um, From an international student-athlete perspective, I think it's important to remember that sports plays... Sports play a huge role, right, in attracting school donors. Bringing the top international student athletes to universities raises the level of competition in our sports. It elevates the notoriety of the university, and especially for schools who have athletes that go on to compete at, at the Olympics, for example. So I think the indirect economic impact to universities could really be felt for years to come as a result of international student athletes not being able to to join universities in the U.S. due to that July 6th uh, revised policy. Right, and, and so it really supports why within the matter of days, universities took action. And on July 8th, Harvard and MIT filed a lawsuit seeking to stop the administration from enforcing the new restrictive policy. They cited to the tremendous negative impact of the new policy and the school's reliance on SCVP's initial statement that its online learning accommodations would remain in place for the duration of the COVID emergency. In July, now let's remember this was just a month ago, we were very much still in the midst of this international pandemic emergency. And as you said before, Kareem, the universities were already planning on operating in the fall with entirely online learning programs. And by July, they had already finalized their plans for the fall semester. And for this change to take place so quickly with very little notice would have placed a tremendous undue burden on the universities and the international student community. On that same day, SCVP notified schools that they had until no later than July 15th to notify SCBP of any changes to their online classes or programs for the fall 2020 semester. So even if the universities wanted to try to meet the requirements of that hybrid model so that their international students could remain in the U.S. and comply with this new policy, they would have to change their entire program within the matter of a week, and that is just overly burdensome for universities. Now, let's remember, they they remained closed over the summer. Um, They were abiding by stay-at-home orders throughout the country, so this really was not a feasible request. And as a result, there was a lot of advocacy that took place over the following week. Karine, can you tell us a little bit about what we saw then? Yes, on July 9th, um, just a few days after the revised policy was issued, 99 members of Congress reacted and sent a letter to Department of Homeland Security and uh, ICE, who oversee the SEVP unit, urging the agencies to withdraw the new SEVP guidance regarding the online learning. Um, The criticism was that the proposed policy was irrational, and a risk to the health of students, faculty, and staff. Of course, um, it really put universities, um, you know, between a rock and a hard place: is complying with the online school um, and dealing with the ripple effect that that would bring um, for, to, to to bring back students to campus and, and risking the health of, of students and and the faculty. Um, The University of California also filed suit against the policy, as well as 18 other states seeking to bar the agency from enforcing the policy and sought to invalidate it in full, um, which then proved to be somewhat successful, correct, Monica? That's right, Kareem. It was exciting and interesting to see the action take place so quickly, and it was important to see those efforts work to the benefit of the international student community. And on July 14th, just a few few days later, we heard that the Harvard and MIT case reached a settlement and ICE announced that they would revert back to the guidance that they initially issued in March, which allowed international students to remain in the US even if their university would offer online only instruction during the COVID pandemic. But unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the road. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened next, Cream? Yeah, I think we were all a bit uh, excited by the initial announcement of, of reverting back to the guidance of March, but uh, on July 24th, as EVP issued a follow-up guidance um, stating that, among other things, new or initial international students pursuing a full course of study that will be conducted completely online would not be able to obtain that f1 student visa to enter the united states so international students in in this new status after march 9th would not be able to enter to enroll in the school if that full course of study was 100 percent online so of course universities have been assessing how to best accommodate this amidst the ongoing pandemic they had to submit revised program changes yet again um, for SEVP approval for to ensure that new and initial international students would be able to qualify for the F-1 student visa and, and obtain that visa abroad at the consulate. It seems that in fact, many universities are taking a hybrid approach and offering some level of in-person courses. Locally here in San Diego, UC San Diego and San Diego State Universities uh, university are offering um, a flexible model um, with with remote learning, a hybrid, or or in person courses. That said, I think unanswered questions remain. You know, will these hybrid models be sufficient for SEVP to approve? Um, we're we're already seeing some universities who that have opened up um, need to suddenly pivot and and close and shut down, and and so what. What will be the impact of, of the F-1 program should schools need to pivot again to 100% online only? Um, and then, of course, what's the impact that this is having on the international student athletes who are currently awaiting to apply and obtain their student visas abroad and, and the impact that this may have to the collegiate sports teams at this point? Well, this will have a tremendous impact to the sports team and sports teams and athletes at our universities. New athletes may not be able to enter the U.S. as you mentioned, Kareem, um, if their universities cannot accommodate the in-person class requirement. Which, also as you mentioned, may be quite difficult to maintain due to the fluid nature of the stay-at-home orders and social distancing requirements that tend to fluctuate depending on the severity of COVID in a particular state. So. Um, This is a big question mark, a big unknown. Um, And even if a university may be able to implement in-person learning initially, they may not be able to continue to maintain it as the fall semester continues. If these new athletes can't enter the U.S. and join teams that they had planned on joining, the makeup of the entire team is thrown off. It also undermines the recruiting process that's taken place over the course of several years As we both know, the recruiting process for athletes at the collegiate level starts early on, and there's a lot of planning, strategy, and forethought that goes into recruiting for a college sports team. A well-balanced, successful team takes years of planning and work, and, um, you know, Kareem, you know a lot about this. Can you share a little bit more about that process and how you think it may be impacted? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, having gone through the college recruiting process recently with my son Jack um, from within the U.S., I can only imagine how much more complex and challenging it must be conducting recruiting from abroad, and then the added challenges that COVID presents. Um, the recruit the recruiting process starts two three years before the student actually begins enrollment at the university. And so um, this does provide a bit of uncertainty. Um, One, for the incoming team, if there have been some athletes already selected for the incoming class, they were likely selected, you know, over a year ago, if not two years ago. Um, So the COVID COVID travel restrictions and consulate closures have already provided a barrier for them to enter the U.S. and begin training with the future team. And now this new F1 policy could add yet another uh, roadblock. From a coaching perspective, I have to say, I suspect that this is going to provide a bit of an imbalance in the team structure. Um, selection of your recruits, and uh, in, 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 as you mentioned, and the makeup of the team, it's a very strategic process in with the goal of winning championships, of course. Um, and if you have a key member in your team who now may not be able to join, even if it's a delayed prospect, right? Um, they won't receive the same training from the coach. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see the rippling effect uh, there on the caliber of the teams in competition. Um, how do you see this effective um, perhaps how, how do you see this affect perhaps the pipelines of pro sports thinking beyond university level? That's a great question, Craig. I really think it will impact the level of notoriety of some of our collegiate sports teams. You mentioned the championships, and of course, that's that's the goal of all of our, our sports teams, and I really agree with your earlier statement that these international student-athletes, they're the, the top athletes in their sports, and they're ultimately elevating the competition amongst all of our student-athletes in the U.S., and they're going to be part of that pipeline of pro sports, so it's going to be difficult for coaches and teams to quickly pivot and try to fill those in empty spots with athletes of the same caliber at such short notice. Um, the professional sports leagues draw both U S and international athletes from our collegiate level sports teams. And so I do think that it will ultimately impact that pipeline and have a ripple effect. Um, soccer and rugby are two examples of sports with a high number of international student-athletes, and some of those international athletes do um, go on to join our professional sports leagues, and they ultimately do elevate the level of competition within those sports, both at the collegiate level and then at the professional level. Um, this is, So the... Um, The the decrease of international student athletes that we may see is not just due to the current restrictions of the F1 student program, but also as a result of the increased level of scrutiny that the program has received as a whole over the last few years. Um, This is deterring international students from wanting to apply to U.S. universities, and this um, includes those international athletes they may be more inclined to attend universities in countries other than the U.S. and compete on those sports teams as a result of the fact that their student visa options may be less restrictive. So those options may be more appealing to them, and um, we may not see as many international student-athletes in the U.S. in the future. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Monica, and, and perhaps those international athletes who decide to pursue their university studies abroad in another country, they might find themselves back to the US at some point. Um, And of course, then we would have to look towards visa categories other than the F1 student visa to determine how they may qualify for for entry in the United States. Um, But uh, we will reserve that topic for a future immigration conversation as part of our ongoing sports and immigration podcast series. Thank you so much, Monica, for this insightful conversation today. Thank you for having me, Karine. And for those of you listening, we hope that you tune in for future episodes on the topic of athletes and the immigration issues that they may face around the globe. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.
0: The Immigration Conversation podcast is presented by Fragment. The leading firm dedicated exclusively to immigration services worldwide. To stay updated on the most current trends and services worldwide, visit our website at www.fragman.com for the latest podcast episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is current as of the date of publication. This podcast does not constitute legal advice or give rise to an attorney-client relationship between any viewer and our firm. If you have any questions, please contact the Global Immigration Professional with whom you work at Fragomen.